current inequality debate in America focuses on taxing the rich, with many Democratic presidential candidates proposing to increase income taxes, raise capital gains taxes, and even institute a new wealth tax. But such proposals overlook a much better way of combating inequality, not to mention boosting economic growth. Expand the housing supply. Get rid of overly restrictive barriers to building housing in America's cities. This would allow more people to live in more productive areas at a more reasonable cost. To discuss housing reform, my guest today is Daniel Shoag. Dan is an associate professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, a visiting professor at Case Western Reserve University, and an affiliate of the Taubman Center for State and Local Government. Earlier this year, he released an excellent policy analysis for the Hamilton Project titled Removing Barriers to Accessing High Productivity Places. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. A big theme of your recent work has been about location, the importance of location. Uh, I'd understand why it would be important or different if you were born in Vietnam or South Africa or China versus being born in the United States. But how big of an impact does location have uh, on the economic outcomes of Americans? Well, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is uh, I'm focused on location because the impact is so large. Um, if you take, you know, say the one of the richer states like Connecticut and one of the poorer states like Mississippi, the gaps in income per capita can be as big as, you know, 75, 80%. And, and that's just huge, uh, especially considering how low mobility costs are. One of the themes in, in my work has been um, housing costs as a, as a barrier to mobility. So when, we, when I'm talking now about big income gaps and not seeing population flows in response to them, that's a relatively recent phenomenon, say the last few decades. Historically, Americans were much more likely to move in response to those income differentials. And a lot of my work has been not trying to so much figure out the sources of those mobility costs, but rather why those migration patterns have changed over time. So in the past, Americans were willing to move to these high income places and and why that's no longer the case. Um, and in the issue of housing, housing scarcity. Um... A, you suggest that's more of a fairly recent issue within the last few de decades. So why did why did that start to become a problem if it wasn't a problem uh, earlier, um, you know, earlier in the last century? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, so again, you know, if you start going back as, as far as we have data, say, you know, back towards the Civil War, you saw Americans were moving to the places that had the highest income and and places with lower income were catching up to places that had higher income. Those are sort of two canonical trends in, in urban or regional macroeconomics, people moving from poor to rich and poorer places catching up to rich ones. And both of those stopped a few decades ago. It's an important question, why did that, why did, what can account for that change? And um, once you start uh, digging into it, you see that it's really tied to housing. Um, there was a real change in housing markets and sort of the these rich, productive parts of the country that redirected migration patterns. You know, those places were always more expensive than uh, other places. Uh, you know, I once gave a disastrous interview where the conclusion was, uh, "Professor learns that New York is expensive." I uh, know, of course, it was. <laughs> it was uh, always the case that New York was more expensive, uh, but uh, the gap in housing prices relative to the gaps in income have really taken off. 
Um, so, you know, the places in the country that had highest wages were always more expensive. But that differential, the price differential relative to the wage gains, has really just uh, exploded. Um, and and I, I guess I sort of intuitively understand why that makes a difference um, as far as where, you know, the, the ease of moving um, if a place suddenly becomes a lot more exp- uh, expensive. But how does, how does that play into sort of that convergence issue where, where areas don't catch up? Sure. Um, so uh, one of the things that's important that we discovered in our work or, uh, is that within a labor market, housing costs really have a different effect on on workers in different skill bins so you know if you're if you're uh thinking about how you know there's some fixed component to housing in your budget share and you're thinking about how rising housing prices affects say worker without a college degree relative to worker with a college degree it can have pretty different effects so it may be worth it for you know a in terms of the, there may be much higher wage gains for a janitor and a lawyer for living in Manhattan relative to, say, you know, Phoenix. But um, those wage gains are offset by differential housing costs. For for a janitor, those uh, housing costs will eat up most of the wage gain, whereas that won't be true for a lawyer. And so what you wind up with when housing prices take off in these rich, most productive cities in the country is sort of skill sorting. People with uh, a lot of education, continue to move to places that offer the highest wages. Those with less education actually start to move away. And so instead of poorer parts of the country catching up, you actually get an end to that historic convergence pattern. Um, And uh, lower income places no longer catch up to these skill sorting, high price, uh, high wage places. Typically when I hear sort of this story about you know, affordability and high housing costs. It seems to be a lot about, again, sort of these, what, they, what you might call these high productivity cities. You mentioned New York, but obviously uh, you know, San Francisco um, gets mentioned frequently. Is this, be, is this basically just a problem with, the, with, with those few cities or is there a more, or does it sort of have a broader impact across America where we have, you know, rising costs and affordability issues? It's a great question because, uh, a lot of my work has been pointing to sort of the macroeconomic consequences of what seems like a pretty local issue, these kind of uh, building restrictions, housing restrictions. You know, it, it's almost weird to think about them having a macro consequence. Uh, but one of the things we discovered in our work is that there really was a change in the way land use was handled across the country, starting in the 70s and the 80s, that really allowed coordination at a much broader level that generated these kind of macroeconomic impacts. So it's not sort of one place, divert, you know, one city doing a one-off thing, but um, through environmentalism and some legal changes that happened at the time, it just became much easier to block development in broader labor market areas. And so you start to see a, a change that, you know, seems like it, it's a very local issue, take on these macroeconomic consequences where it redirects migration patterns more broadly. Um, before we get this into some of the very specific ways uh, in which regulation makes housing development more expensive, uh, since you've mentioned sort of the macroeconomic consequences a couple of times, what are those sort of big picture consequences? And it's, it's not just about, you know, how how expensive a very small apartment or house is in the Bay Area, but what are sort of the bigger consequences? Well, so one of them is that you because the you know the Price, housing prices differentially deter lower school workers, this can be a, a, an additional source of inequality. Um, so, you know, if uh, there are high wage opportunities um, 
for workers without a college education in some of these rich areas like San Francisco, but they just can't afford them to live in that area. Well, um, you know, that, that's an, an extra source of inequality. It can also have productivity effects. So, um, you know, if wages and opportunities are, are uh, large in these productive areas and we're shutting uh, workers out of them, uh, that can, you know, drive down productivity. We're sort of redirecting people to sort of mid-wage places, you know, Central Florida and stuff like that. And so um, there's productivity consequences, inequality consequences. And then, uh, you know, there's just sort of this uh, problem of convergence, which had been an important part of the fall in inequality in the post-war period, uh, largely stopping. So what if the, 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 the sort, we, we didn't have these sort of additional barriers, which, you know, we, we actually will get into some detail on. Uh, and and the kinds of housing policy that we saw before the 70s had had continued through the 80s and 90s into the 21st century. How would well, it look different? I mean, would, so, would, these, would these would San Francisco be much bigger and New York? We'd have sort of these megalopolises. How would how, how would sort of the areas would have converged? It sounds like America might look very different under with different kinds of housing policy. I do think it would look pretty different. And, and uh, you know, you, I agree with what you said, San Francisco and would be Boston, these places would be bigger. It's, um, you know, right now, it, if you're thinking about moving to one of these cities uh, in, you know, if you don't have a college degree, you're, you will, your wage would likely go up, but it, it would, would not make sense given the, the housing costs. And so, you know, people are sort of directed away from these high wage places. And if you think about it, say uh, Manhattan used to be denser than it is now, right? It used, you know, used to have immigrants get off the boat and uh, have this, you know, this, uh, you know, the Lower East Side full of immigrants and uh, Lower Manhattan full of immigrants. And, and that's not what it looks like now, right? Uh, um, people are, it's less dense than it used to be. People, it's now very hard to live in some of these high wage places unless you yourself uh, are in a quite high skilled uh, occupation category. With, with the, because there's so much of you know, the, sort of the national conversation lately, uh, certainly since the 2016 election has been about sort of the left behind parts of America. Would, would we have as many left behind parts of America or would they still be there? Just fewer people would be living in them. Yeah. So I, I think you, you know, there are parts of America where it's not so much that there, you know, there's a literature that discusses whether or not migration in general has decreased. And that really hasn't been the focus of my work. There's still a fair amount of migration in the country. It's not that people aren't leaving the Rust Belt, say, they're just moving to different places. And so, I, you know, you may not have seen some, some of the rise in population that we've seen in kind of these mid-wage places like Central Florida or something right. like that, where, where uh, costs of living are low. And so those are attractive options, uh, even if the wages aren't incredible. Now, one of the things you did have historically, even when there was a lot of migration to this rich parts of the country, is is this convergence. Poor places were catching up, and and some of that, you know, was driven by migration itself, right? As as labor became more scarce, and as the migration, you know, gave an outlet for people with lower skills, you you were able to uh, um, see incomes in in lower income places uh, converge to the richer places. So the gaps that we see today between a place like New York and a place like Mississippi are much smaller than they were, you know, 
in the 1930s or something like that. But that process of catch-up is, is also stopped. And, and, you know, in the last few decades, uh, we don't see much convergence. Okay. So, so what are the, sort of the, the kinds of regulations that really make development a lot more expensive than it needs to be? Yeah. I hear we, don't I want build, we don't want buildings to collapse, right? You know, <laughs> we, we, can, we don't want people to be able to build anything they want anywhere. So, so what, are sort of, what, are, what are these policies and, and what would be the impact of, of getting that? So uh, this is a, it's a great question. And I, I think there's answers at the local level, and then there's uh, ability to think a little bit more broadly about the kind of changes that um, made this uh, kind of a nationwide problem a, a few decades ago. Um, so, you know, at a, at a local level, you have a, a lot of restrictions on things like, you know, height and density, say, you know, uh, back, uh, back when I was living in, in Brookline in a, a beautiful apartment, uh, apartment building was six stories, right? Why not add a seven story, an eight story? It would have been extremely profitable. Uh, obviously, they, there were height restrictions that prevented that. And so that made everything more expensive. You know, economists believe in supply and demand. And if you choke off supply uh, and there's lots of demand, you'll get rising prices. Um, so econ, at least in housing, econ 101 <laughs> still works. I, because I, I'm on Twitter a lot and, and I've heard that econ 101 no longer works. Yeah, people have all these uh, uh, assumptions about housing, how increasing supply will not generate affordability. And, and I think it's easy to understand some of the confusion in that, um, you know, you often see, <laughs> when you do see development, it's often in expensive areas. And it's kind of the, the correlation causation problem, right? People die at, in the hospital, uh, cops show up when there's a lot of crime. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we don't think the hospital is killing people or the police are creating the crime. So, yes, you know, there's often development in expensive places and people make the, you know, uh, incorrect assumption that the development is causing the place to become expensive. Uh, but there's really good evidence on this. And uh, I hope I've contributed to it that it really think things go the other way. Uh, supply and demand do work. When you increase supply, prices will come down. And uh um, that's not just true at the top of the distribution, you know, housing filters down. So as housing ages, um, you know, it, something that may have uh, appealed to the richest part of a, uh, a labor market, um, you know, as it ages, it starts to work its way down the income spectrum. And so uh, in the end, you wind up, you know, increasing supply makes things cheaper for everybody. Uh yeah, <laughs> right. you, you well, wouldn't and, know and, it from reading Twitter. But right, <laughs> you, certainly, you certainly would not. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, in your work, you know, you go through some of the different kinds of uh, uh, rate regulation. Is there is there is it is it regulation that prevents? Is it really? It's sort of a density issue, right? It's not. Is it so much that we're not building enough single family homes, but we're just not building enough, you know, condos and apartment buildings where you have just a lot more density, and I guess preferably density near public transportation. Yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, um, you know, uh, if you walk, Boston is n uh, not that dense an area, right? There are, there's plenty of uh, undeveloped land around Boston. Or if you walk around Palo Alto, you're not blown away by how dense it is, right? So, sure. uh, so this, this is, you know, the, the parts of the country that have gotten very really expensive, even if you thought, say, Manhattan was the outer limit, you know, that's how dense we were technologically able to be. There are plenty of these expensive productive places that are far, far less dense than that. And so, um, you know, this really isn't a, 
technology story or a we've run out of land story, but uh, we've set up uh, uh, restrictions on supply. And what I was starting to, and I, I don't know if this interests you, but what I was starting to say is these local regulations make a, make a difference, but it's really the degree of coordination that we've enabled by having things that you know, at the state level, like environmental review boards that provide kind of a double veto or processes that make you say require a super majority to, to make these kind of zoning changes, um, that, that have really sort of made this a problem, you know, made this a, a problem. You know, if you had one neighborhood in a productive place, shut off development, well, that would be fine as long as there was, there were other parts of the city that were still developing. What you've really had here is kind of uh, an increase in regional coordination. And so you have whole labor markets that have really, you know, just become uh, prohibitively expensive. So if you're trying to attack this issue, it's, it's not just it's that's just you know, sort of an extremely hyper local issue. There are things that can be done at certainly at the state uh, level um, to increase you know, the amount of housing supply. Right. Yes, for sure. And I think that's where you're more likely to be effective rather than trying to fight this, you know, city by city. And and it makes sense that this has become such an issue. Uh, and it's so important because people have a lot of money invested in their house. I, you know, I recently became a homeowner and, and I, you know, and I, and I, uh, I, I would like to protect the, the value of my investment, too. I, I, I certainly understand the incentives. But if you kick this up to, to higher levels, it may be more effective because rather than sort of uh, trying to target, you know, the, individ- the, the really strong individual incentives in local government, you can make reforms that make development possible and, and broadly beneficial. Um, so, you know, we've seen some action in California, things like SB 35, which, you know, was not perfect, but uh, um, required cities to, that were failing to meet their housing needs, which is basically every city in California, create an approval process without a public hearing, have well-defined time limits, and gave some teeth to, to these regulations by allowing developers to use the courts to enforce them. You know, there are, there are kind of a myriad of ways in which cities and local governments can block development, and it's hard to play whack-a-mole with each one. Uh, and so, these kind of state level uh, initiatives, uh, I think, are the best target for success. And can, state and federal, and, yeah. And can, right. Well, and and the um, and sort of the best. I mean, sort of the best thing that can happen on the federal level is what? What, what would what would be what? What again? What can the federal government actually do? Um, so, well, the one of the things the federal government can do is uh, you know kind of stop exacerbating the problem via the, you know, tax code, which does have incentives for promoting larger housing and, uh, you know, things like the mortgage introduction, which definitely have been capped and things are moving in the right direction. There's also um, room for kind of uh, race to the top programs that sort of encourage um, development by tying federal funds or punishing anti-development policies. I know, you know, say using HUD funds and mm-hmm. providing incentives to local government. So, uh, you know, the federal government can both kind of uh, get out of its uh, get out of the way on this problem, and also uh, uh, use public money to be a spur. So far, about the uh, the only um, uh, uh, way this issue has uh, popped up, at least so far in the, uh, the you know as we begin sort of the the race for the White House here in 2020, is on the Democratic side where they've talked about national rent control as a as a solution. Um, do you know anything about uh, any of those proposals or what do you think more broadly about yeah. that idea? Yeah, I, 
I think that that's kind of or that's unlikely to help the situation. Um, you know, the the problem here is that we have a supply problem. The you know the problem here is a supply problem. Uh, developers are just unable to build uh, given the regulations in place, and you, it's very hard to solve the supply problem by sort of uh, trying to cap prices or regulate demand. And you know that it's. So something like rent control is likely to be counterproductive, make it more, you know, less profitable for developers to, to build. Uh, and, and the issue here is, is really the opposite. We need to be encouraging people to develop uh, in these high-wage places, uh, making it easier, making it more profitable. And so, you know, the national rent control, I think, is not the solution. Is, is, and is the, the reason I, – I understand why, why someone who has a house might be – you know, a particular area might be against there being a lot more housing supply because they figure, well, my house price isn't going to go up as fast. Maybe it'll fall. But uh, but other people, other sort of policy people, do they just not, do they think more supply, as you sort of mentioned earlier, will mean just very expensive places being built? Do, do they not believe that sort of more middle income or lower income housing will be built with a different regulatory uh, environment? So, the, you know, there's there's. Um... There, is, there can be at the very local level some concerns about gentrification and changing neighborhoods. Uh, you know, my in my read of the literature is that it, it's actually more likely to go the other way. That that blocking, you know, if it's not the high income people who are kept out of the neighborhood uh, and increasing supply does not, you know, lead to more gentrification or or neighborhood change. Um, you know, there there is a sort of a difference between targeting housing affordability at the very low end. Um, so people who, even in relatively cheap cities, would struggle with housing costs. And mm-hmm. and there, you know, there there's room for policies that you know target those groups. But that's sort of a different problem from what we've seen recently, which is some parts of the country becoming unaffordable, even to relatively mid wage, you know, relatively high up the distribution. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, there's room for policies that worry about housing affordability for people who can't afford housing, even in affordable cities. But and it's unlikely. So, that- so, so they kind of people are kind of they kind of mix the two issues together. It sounds like like yeah. pe- people, people sort of at the very lower end versus sort of the broader um, sort of more. It's kind of your broader middle class who still can't uh, afford to live in these cities. What, what are the what are the cities getting it right? Is it uh, oftentimes people will po- point to Texas as a place where there are, you know, where regulation is much lighter as a, a as a good example. But other people say, no, you don't want that. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. And you have cities like Austin where there's too much congestion. So where, where what cities do you think are, are sort of hitting sort of the sweet spot with uh, lighter regulation, but still enough for regulation? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the concerns about Texas are a little bit. Uh, unfair, right? I mean, if you, if you, you know, uh, many uh, urban economists used to point to cities like San Francisco or Boston as successful because they get increasingly educated, the rest of the country is not catching up to them in income, but they become that way by, you know, basically pricing out uh, a large part of the population, lower skill population. There's been giant population growth in Texas because it's an attractive uh, place for, for people. And, you know, uh, that's, uh, one of the reasons, you know, that can be considered a big success. I think we have, um, you know, in addition, we have 
you know, examples of very dense places like Tokyo, right, which has uh, had enormous construction and uh, prices have come down and are affordable, right? Tokyo hasn't had the same kind of price growth that uh, cities like Boston, San Francisco, New York, et cetera. Um, you know, you, you can point to cities here like Raleigh, which has grown a lot in population and has not seen housing prices take off the same way. And so that we, you know, we have both domestic models, we have international models there, you know, including, you know, giant metropolitan, you know, megalopolises that uh, have had construction. Um, you know, they're, they're, we, we, you know, we know how to do this technologically. That you know, this is a policy problem. Not so, a, so, I mean, should uh, policymakers so they try to encourage still building in a certain way? You know, building highly dense downtown areas versus uh, you know more into the you know the suburbs. We have a lot of sprawl. Is 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 there a particular is there a particular path you think is better? You know, I I don't know that. Um, I mean, there's a there's a lot of concerns that go into this, right? So because a lot of people you know, say, oh, what, what you're saying is there's going to be a lot more congestion. You're going to want a lot more building. It's going to be denser, more people. It's going to be congestion, and they'll point to cities that they don't like. Um, is again, so is there? I don't know. It's kind of a tough question, but is there sort of a a, a better or smarter path that hits kind of a sweet spot for everybody? I guess so, I'm so a fan. You're not against yeah, all I'm, local I'm not control. A fan of necessarily right. So I, I'm a fan of uh, allowing. Um, you know, people on the ground to decide, you know, where it's most profitable to, to build. The, the real issue here is the, you know, the, the overregulation, which, which prevents decision makers from, from deciding uh, what to do with their own property. And, um, you know, uh, it's the, the problem is not uh, my wanting to tell, you know, Jim, hey, Jim, you need to turn your house into an apartment building, but rather my telling Jim, hey, you know, you, you're not allowed to sublet your basement apartment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to come into this and say, I think that there's only one way a city can look, but I think states and the, the federal government can do things like encourage cities with um, financing to uh, uh, have uh certain number of units built uh, over time to do things like have, you know, zoning budgets. Uh, so create minimum housing needs to do things like, you know, rewarding uh, development or um, simplifying the process. So you don't have things like, um, you know, environmental review board at the state level, which provides a double check, a double veto on things that are approved at the local level, removing things like super majority requirements, you know, basically uh, eliminating some of the things that that uh, prevent people who want to build housing from being able to build housing. I don't know if that. Would, you know. I, was gonna, I mean, would it be the case sort of if we do nothing and these high productivity cities just continue to become wildly expensive at some point? Don't don't sort of high skill workers stop going there and they, and they don't look as 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 inviting a place to be, to uh, to start start your company uh, a company maybe that you hope becomes wildly successful and then you'll go elsewhere in the US and the, and and by that you'll eventually have a situation where um where sort of the talent and entrepreneurial you know you know talent and tech talent will sort of disperse to other areas because those cities just simply too expensive uh for anybody and therefore the problem kind of solve itself over time 
Well, I, I guess I, I think that one, there's a big loss to keeping people out of these high wage places now. Um, that was an important part. You know, it used to be the case in America that there were two ways you could dramatically improve your fortunes if you were, say, born in a lower income part of the country. And one was to get an education. And the other was to move to a richer, air, richer part of the country. Uh, and we've basically priced out one of those options. And so I, I think that's a real loss. And we're keeping talented people out of places that would make them most productive. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, a loss I'm, I'm not, I don't think we should tolerate. And, and the second is I think that there are structural issues that we've sort of unleashed in the last few centuries that make this, prob make this uh, a problem that, you know, is likely to occur as places become more productive or as they grow. Um, you know, we, you know, uh, we've sort of enabled this um, level of regional control and development or, you know, regional ab ability to block development at the regional level, which, which uh, means that, you know, as new places become sort of hubs for innovation and things like that, we may face these problems again. Probably the, uh, I mean, you're saying that, so we kind of know how to fix it. And the problem is really the politics. And it's a pretty big problem. Is it such a big problem that perhaps we should think about other ways of dealing with the issues, such as if it's really hard to build in the Bay Area, maybe we should just then focus on building public transportation to get people from lower cost areas, um, you know, to these high productivity areas. I mean, not, not just buses, but maybe we need to build high speed rail um, <laughs> places much further from the highly dense areas and just bring the workers in there. I've had people suggest that idea to, idea to me as well. I do think transportation can can be part of it, but um, you know the the I'm not as pessimistic as as you are uh, about the potential solution. It is at the local level a formidable thing to, to come to someone and say, we want to build more in your neighborhood. Um, you know, I've certainly had neighbors come around to me and say, oh, you know, we want to block this. Uh, it will overcrowd the school. It will create pollution and stuff like that. But I, I think where the, when this really became a problem was when our legal system, you know, with these kind of changes in the way we treat these land use issues legally um, and at the state and regional level, in the last few decades. And so, you know, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always the case. And so it, I don't think it, it has to always be the case uh, either. We, you know, there are models internationally of dealing with this. We've dealt, we've dealt with this better in the past. I think we can do better going forward. So, do, so you think it is more likely that we could solve the political problem uh, than we're, we're going to start building lots of high-speed rail from 90 miles outside of major major cities to bring in the workers? Um, maybe it's, maybe I'm just uh, optimistic, but uh, I, I think there's, there's increasing recognition uh, at higher levels of government. You're seeing these reforms uh, starting to take place in state capitals. Um, you know, so I mentioned um, some action in California. You're seeing this big movement. Um, I don't know if you've uh, heard much about it, the YIMBY movement. So yes, in my backyard, um, this was something that, largely didn't exist, uh, you know, two decades ago, but uh, kind of a movement pushing housing reform, pushing for construction. Um, they've had some real accomplishments uh, in the political process and are growing in strength. So, so, you know, I think, you know, 
you know, by you doing this podcast, by people getting the um, message out, there's more recognition among policymakers and among people about the consequences. And, and I, I think there's a, a lot of reason for hope. Now, last question. You know, one would think that given the role of housing in the financial crisis and Great Recession, that politicians would be talking about housing a lot in, in all different ways. And especially given that given there's already this existing concern about income inequality and a wealth inequality, and it seems that housing plays a pretty big issue in both those things. Why, you know, maybe this is changing, but why are we talking about things like raising taxes on 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 the wealthy or on corporations to deal with inequality rather than housing? How it seems like that the democratic debates that we've been seeing that rather than you know spending forty minutes on you know inequality or something. They're spending 40 minutes on housing. So uh, you, you raise a uh, good point. I think that the, this would be a, you know, a healthy direction for the debate. The, you know, I, I think the part of the discussion we had before is one of the reasons it makes it difficult is a lot of the push seems, you know, so right now we're in this situation where people have a lot of their wealth invested in housing. A lot of the reforms seem piecemeal and one-off. So, this isn't a change that applies to everybody where we're, you know, we're some developers cutting a particular deal for some sort of development. So, you know, I don't get, uh, my property is not more valuable because it's been upzoned, but some other property is, and my property value might fall. Uh, it's a hard, it's hard because there's a, the correlation and causation problem we talked about earlier. A lot of development does happen in expensive places for reasons we've talked about. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I do think it, there it's it's a hard issue to, to uh, demagogue. Uh, you know, even the environmental discussion we talked about, and you know, oh well, if we allow unregulated development, things will be congested and polluted. I, I think the the research suggests the opposite. Your your suggestion that well, people can just live really far from work and do a lot of commuting, right? Uh, you know, we can have people beautiful, sleek, air conditioned bullet trains. Yeah, exactly. And well, we'll live in the sun belt, right? I mean, uh, all this land use regulation, all this environmental review and stuff, it's kept people out of California is pushing them to live in Phoenix is terrible for the environment, you know, uh, in some sort of macro picture. Right, right now we do environmental review at the very local level, right? What is this, you know, what is this uh, apartment building going to do for the environment locally? But the people don't disappear. So if you price people out of San Francisco and you move to Phoenix and they need all this air conditioning and they, you know they all this commuting, well, that's much worse for the environment. And 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 our politics right now aren't even set up to to have that discussion. So you know I I'm not sure I answered your, your question well, but I, I hopefully if we can kind of change people's perspective to to think about this as, as more of a macro issue and think about you know not you know what should we do in my small town but you know how should we set this up nationally or at least at the state and regional level um we can have a, a more intelligent conversation dan thanks for coming on the podcast thanks so much for speaking with me City.